Welcome to Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. I'm Shannon Lawrence. And I'm M.B. Partlow. Quick content warning before we get started. This podcast may contain language and disturbing content, so enter at your own risk. Hello. 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 Welcome (laughs) once again. (laughs) To Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. To the inanity and babbling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. Well, you know. (laughs) What have you been up to? Anything interesting? About five, six. No. (laughs) About. Yeah. I I haven't watched a damn thing. Wow. No, I just. I don't know what happened. I've been reading, though. That's good. (laughs) I want a new. Well, who knows when it popped on there. I didn't notice because I get stuck on one platform and then I go to the other one. I'm like, oh, look, there's new shows and there's new episodes for all these shows I watch. So one that popped up was Selling Sunset. Have you ever watched that? No. It's a real estate agency in L.A. Uh-huh. They're selling multi-million dollar properties. So each commission has to be just fucking insane. Yeah. So it's, there's these two, like, short, bald, twin men that run it. Okay? And it then they have these familiar. Glamazon women that are the actual realtors there with them. It's, they're like, they're the epitome of LA Ah. they're most of them are blonde and like they've all had some manner of work from the look of it (laughs) I mean they're a theory you look at them and they're unrealistically beautiful Ah. these women and but then like clearly several of them were not born with lips as full and massive (laughs) as they are you know and they're all always impeccably like glamour dressed, like LA mm-hmm. dressed, and their hair is did, and their makeup is crazy, and the drama and the cat fight. So that's what I watch it for. Again, somebody else's drama. What platform is it on? That one I watch on Netflix, I think. Oh. So I've just kind of started watching episodes of it here and there, and then I watch something else. Well, you know, I'm still watching the Great British Baking Show. Because <laughs> I'm old. Well, now I can go back and be. watch the first episode. And be like, oh yeah, and they have holiday compilations. And I might have to one. actually watch it. Like I kind of watched one season with Jeff at one point because he watches the food shows mm-hmm. on his stuff because it, you know, he can relax and do other stuff. Both of us do shit while we watch stuff. Like neither of us is good at just sitting there and watching something, which is why, like, I'll watch. If there's one night that I'm going to give myself to mostly watch something, I'll watch things with subtitles or whatever. That's when I watch the foreign films. Because ah. I really enjoy foreign films. There's really good ones. Like, um, there's a bunch of Korean ones, like horror mm-hmm. films that stand out and stuff. So I'm just like, okay, tonight I can deal with subtitles. Because <laughs> otherwise it's got to be like Spanish where I, I, my brain can actually process what's happening without reading all the subtitles. Some, But... You know, there's still going to be shit that's either too fast or I don't know those words. There is some stuff that I'm like, I'll sit there. It, I'm sad to say the last season or two of Supernatural was this way for me. I couldn't sit there unless I had something else to do while uh, I was sitting there. And see, I skipped out on Supernatural before then because I was over it. I was pretty I bored by... I never liked the Angels and Demons stuff. I liked Monster of the Week. I, yeah, I love Monster of the Week. And I liked when they, once they started, it's just the X-Files, you know, I actually didn't much give a shit about aliens when I watched X-Files, which I've been rewatching True. slowly too. But it obviously that was the overarching theme. It was meant to be because mm-hmm. of Fox Mulder's sister, he felt had been yes. taken by aliens or whatever. So, and they did a lot of interesting things with it. They brought astronauts in a couple times who ran into mm-hmm. things like the face on Mars. <laughs> I remember when that was a big I deal. I don't remember that one. But you remember when it was in the news all the time? Because yes. they'd seen that, oh, it looks like an artificial structure and it's shaped into the face. And no, it was just the shadows and all that, uh-huh. right? But there was an episode in X-Files that was about the face on Mars and like somebody's haunted by it and it's going into people and stuff. And, and people will just rant at you about that and you can't explain to them, to some people, the human brain tries to make sense. Of, that's why we see pictures in clouds. Right. Did you know that's fascinating, though? There's a name for it, and not everybody sees that. Did you know that not everybody sees, like, shapes in the clouds and shapes in, not. like, wood, where, you know, sometimes you'll see a face and, like, a knot on the wood or something like that? No. Or, 
I did not know that not apparently not every that. brain is wired that way. Wow. But I mean, I think it is when you see something, you try your brain is trying to make sense of it. Right. Whether you see fantastical things. That's why or, Uncanny Valley is such an issue too, because you're like, that thing is quasi human yet not human. It is wrong, it will kill me. Mm-hmm. Lizard brain. Mm-hmm. Brain has to make sense of things and then it has to see if they're a threat. Only my brain. I'll see things and it's like, I got to stop and rub my eyes and look again and go, okay. I swear to God, I thought there was a place in um, Virginia Beach when I lived there called Reality Mart. Because <gasps> I would only see it when I was zooming down the highway yeah. at night. I would see the great big neon sign. And then finally one night I'm like, oh, Realty Mart. But I was like, Reality Mart, what a great story that would be. I don't know what the story is, but it would be great. You should write that short story. I I do You know, I might. This has nothing to do with that. But it's something I see when I'm driving out toward Powers, down Woodman. Mm -hmm. And there's a giant, it's giant white neon letters or whatever. And it says, save the storks on this building. And I always want to look it up. Because it's Save huge the what? Storks. Save the storks. Yep. It's right there on Woodman. Is it condoms? There's it's, a hill. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I want to look it up and be like, wow, you guys are really into this. And yet I never have heard of you. But I see this. It's just a building sign. I'm Save writing the down. Storks. Save the storks so I can put it in our notes. <laughs> there you go. Maybe look at a donation if that's truly what they are. It's like there's like a hill that you hit and then eventually you start yeah. going down and you're going to hit, um, what is it, Austin Bluffs mm-hmm. or whatever. It's right there at the top of the hill. Save the storks now, on the now, right-hand side now, of the road. I have driven out there not, well, not too long ago, but not super recently, and I do not remember it. Yeah. Hmm. We drove all the way out there for something or other. The day I was trying to remember what it was because then it would be <laughs> it was a restaurant. And I cannot for the life of me remember where we drove all the. Oh, I know what it was. It was the. Never mind. Oh. It was the turkey. It was a Baskin Robbins. Oh. To a Baskin Robbins that had the turkey cake that we had. How was it? I mean, it was good. There's no cake, by the way. It's just it's ice just cream. It's just ice cream? With like whipped cream and caramel over it. Wow. Yeah. I thought it would have a cake. I thought it was ice cream cake. Like I said, but nope. And then like everybody else in the household is all, well, I mean, it is from Baskin Robbins. Why do you expect cake? I'm like, ice cream places sell ice cream cakes with cake in them. Baskin Robbins is famous for their ice cream cakes. I used to get them for the girls for their birthdays. Oh, really? Because we usually get out, we get get sometimes Josh and John's, but usually Blue Mountain, gelato, ice cream and gelato or whatever, but... I'm like, they sell cakes. Yeah. It's really freaking easy to make a cake. I'm sure they all do it from a mix. Or I've even like made ice cream cakes. Nope. Look. Literally ice cream. Wow. And it's fine. I'm going to pick on my husband on here because I picked on him on per- in person. <laughs> so we had Thanksgiving is the same week as my birthday. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this in the past since we never talked about this. But so we had my birthday cake from Boonsires. And then Ooh. while that was still partially left over oh. in the fridge, then we had this cake that we picked up a few days before we were going to eat it. <laughs> so, well, cake I use loosely, oh, yes. the ice cream mound. And so without thinking, my husband put it in the fridge, the ice cream. And so we're sitting there and he's, and he's like talking about the two cakes in the fridge. And I'm like, well, the cake in the fridge and the cake in the freezer. And he's like, oh shit. And he gets up and he goes <laughs> out there. It's like two hours after we've gotten home with it. And it was fine. He moved it over. But then another night he did the same thing. Just, it was in his head, I guess, from taking the other cake mm-hmm. out because we keep it in the fridge in the garage for something that big. Well, you know? yeah. And <laughs> put it in the fridge again, but this time it did like melt down. So then there's just this pile <laughs> on. The kids are like, how do we serve this? Because I've been cutting it with a knife. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you get an ice cream scoop and you scoop up just the ice cream. Just get a spoon and have as much as you want. Oh, Lord. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> I was wrong because I think I told you on a past episode that it was like up in Briargate that the uh-huh. only Baskin Robbins it was in Stetson Hills, so that's ah. why we had to go all the way out past Powers. I know to where Stetson that. Hills. I know where that Baskin Robbins is. Okay, well that was the only one that sold them, so we oh. drove all the way over there for mounds of ice cream. It was good though. The caramel was good. I'm a, I'm a fan of chocolate ice cream, and if I'd realized there was no cake. I would have chosen because they had like a bunch of different. They didn't have thirty one options, by the way, just to, just for the record. But they had different options. 
but I wanted chocolate. And most of their options that have chocolate in them don't have chocolate ice cream. They have vanilla. And I don't like the taste of vanilla ice cream. So it was like a Snickers one and a peanut butter cup one. If I'd known, I probably would have gotten one of those instead of just chocolate. Fair. But, you Very know, fair. It was still it was still good. I, will I do it again? Eh, probably not, but it was a fun novelty. But you know it's there. Yeah. So now you know it exists, just in case. You can Absolutely. throw that out. You have that knowledge. I do. And I could be like, this would be great fun. Let's get it again. Or I could go to the store and I could get my ice cream of my choice and put some whipped cream and some caramel on it and have the same thing for less than you could, $45. You could soften it. You could probably get a turkey mold. Oh, yeah. And it, your own. Yeah. And then it was like the tips of the cones. So it wasn't a whole cone that was like the turkey leg at the back. Oh, it right. Was just, just a mound of ice cream, like a little mounded ice cream on either side oh, with a little, a little edge of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was super cute. It's, well, that's It's a good. good idea. And I'm glad I did it. But <laughs> I couldn't do it again, probably. It was fun. Good. Because I don't actually like pumpkin pie. I will eat a tiny sliver with a mound, giant mound of either Cool Whip or whipped cream on it. I like pumpkin pie, but I like most pie. I don't like cream pies. And I'm not a pie person to begin with. I only like cream pies. That's That's not true. I'll eat an apple pie because I love the apples. But then if I eat that, I feel like I've wasted my dessert. (laughs) (laughs) So what I prefer is for Jeffrey to get an apple pie and me to take bites. But he likes cherry pie. I like cherry pie. I also like a blueberry pie. But again, in the same way as an apple. I just, I don't like pie. I don't like crust. I don't like pancakes. I don't like biscuits. And yeah. Why are we friends? (laughs) And you don't like Listen, you don't like marshmallows. But you don't like maple syrup. Not real maple syrup. (laughs) I like a little maple flavored high fructose corn syrup. (laughs) And I like burnt marshmallows. Ugh. No, I like a marshmallow roasted over fire. Like, no, I like to set it on fire and then yeah, let it burn I like out it and then you peel that the off is, and eat it. Oh, see, I like it. I like the whole thing because it's like charred on the outside and then it's goo on the inside. I just like the charred part. I will retoast the inside and burn it <laughs> Layers. Again. Yep. All right, then. Well. <laughs> but see, I like lots of other breads. For some, There's something very dry about biscuits and pancakes to me that bothers me. I get that. And also pie crust. I get that. Except um, the omelet parlor yeah. has a pancake of the month. Nope. I've d- I don't like their pancakes either. I will tell you, though, that I like, um, what is it? Black Bear Diner? Mm-hmm. They, they have amazing pancakes. I will eat those. They're not dry. Huh. I'm writing. And they time. clearly have vanilla or something in them. So they're like, they're just like a sugary fluff cloud of bread that I can put my high fructose corn syrup on. <laughs> Well, the omelet parlor does, they have regular pancakes, but they also have this pancake of the month. So sometimes when we go in, we, yeah, I'm so like we go there that often, but I'll say, can we have a pancake of the month for the table? And one time I went in and it was a lemon poppy seed pancake. It was the best fucking pancake I've ever had in my life. You're oddly. So good. Oddly, since I don't support chains over <laughs> mom and pops. Again, Blackbird Diner chain. Uh, there's also... A uh, multi-grain pancake that I like at Village Inn. And at the right time of year, Perkins has a pumpkin pancake. That's the multi-grain one has spices in it, I think, which is why I like it. But yeah. I'm not writing down Perkins no, in Village Inn. don't write it down. But, <laughs> you know, it's a whole conversation about pancakes. That's true. But yeah, and to be clear, I grew up with Southern cooking. And biscuits were a thing. And the whole <laughs> made me sad in my soul because they were too dry. But, and I'm sure my mom made great biscuits. All the biscuits I've had, I don't like. I will slather them with butter and jam. And then now, I'm like, I'm did fine. you ever eat chicken and biscuits? With the chicken gravy and the big chunks of chicken over the biscuits? No, my dad liked biscuits and gravy. But it, my mom, that wasn't something my mom made, surprisingly. See, I don't like sausage gravy because it's milk-based and that's... No. Nasty to me. But But with a good chicken gravy and... Yeah, I'll eat anything with gravy on it, (laughs) to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) You're not tasting the thing. You're tasting the gravy. It's pretty much like chocolate sauce. Yeah. They're desserts I wouldn't really want, but if they've got chocolate or caramel sauce on them. Yeah, I'll eat anything with a sauce, honestly. Pretty much. Spaghetti. I don't like spaghetti. 
but I like spaghetti sauce, and therefore <laughs> I will just absolutely douse my spaghetti with sauce. But yeah, <laughs> I'll eat anything with gravy on it. I, but you're not wrong. legit. I <laughs> you are absolutely not wrong. I many foods are just a vehicle for whatever the sauce or or condiment I put on them is. Except, and I have this. I'm at odds with the entire world on this one. I am not a big fan of hollandaise sauce. Oh, yeah. No, it always actually makes me sick. It's just kind of... And I don't know why. Uh, and I can't eat it anymore anyway, because egg. But... Ah. Um, I have just never... I don't I don't hate it, but I don't seek it out. Literally, every time I've tried it, no matter where, sick to my stomach. And that's the nice way we'll put it. Thank you. <laughs> I have now taken to... If I go someplace and there's a dish that has hollandaise sauce on it that I want... I. I will look at the menu and see if they have green chili, and I will say, um, would you please put green chili on it instead of hollandaise? And they look at me funny, but they do it, and it's... I think I liked the taste the couple of times I did it, but it wasn't worth the price, so I don't even remember. Yeah. But again, can't have it anyway, so <laughs> whatever. So it doesn't matter. Maybe that was why. Maybe that was what I was reacting to before the eggs became a bigger problem. I have no freaking idea. We should not be recording close to dinner time, apparently. <laughs> no. <laughs> We got a pie thing too. Got a pie. I got to tell you this. At Thanksgiving, from the Broadmoor, they had a, they do a fundraiser and then they come around the offices and they may want to buy. And they had three choices. I can't remember what the other ones were, but we got Dutch apple. I tell you, it's one of the best apple pies I've ever eaten. Coming from the Broadmoor, better be. Yeah, I would expect it to be. I will say for the record, because I interviewed a lot of people who used to work in the Broadmoor, they are not good to their employees, their their service employees. I've heard that. Everybody knows. I would hope they had improved that. It's kind of fascinating all the places that when I interviewed people, consistently line cooks and servers had worked at the same places before. Right. Like they were actually able to just say, oh my gosh, do you remember such and such? And I'm like, (laughs) I didn't work at any of these places. But they had talked to each other about it because it was that and like the wines of Colorado, a lot of my employees had come from there. Really? Yes. They closed. Which is crazy because it's all the way up. <laughs> I'm not going to write that one down either because I believe it's, they closed. Yeah. Uh, it was still open when I drove by last time. I do know that it is closing. Yeah. What I heard was that they're not, they wanted their kids to take over or something. Unless I'm thinking of a different restaurant, which it could very well be. And they didn't want to. And so they're retiring. That was why it's closed. And running a restaurant. And it was also a anymore. terrible place to work. Ah. Just so you know. <laughs> I was going to talk some shit that <laughs> about <laughs> restaurants that I will never apply. Because for people who don't know, the Broadmoor is this big, huge, oh, richy, rich, elegant resort. Yes, resort hotel with a golf course. And anyway, <laughs> there's a bunch of restaurants in it, too, and yes. like a bakery and stuff like that. I don't know. I've never actually been to them, but now I've interviewed a bunch of people in the places that they've worked <gasps> in them. We could go to the Golden Bee for lunch one day. I have heard that people like the Golden Bee. I've, it's been around a long time. They have a yard been. of beer. That's all I remember. I have no desire to... I've never seen the appeal in trying to drink a yard of beer. Isn't that what they gave out the bee stickers for, though? Didn't you get like no, a No, that's for fuzzy... singing, singing. They have a piano player and a sing-along. Oh, fun. And they, they just walk through and flick bees on people. <laughs> These little adhesive bees. They're, they're little sewn patches. They're not real life bees. <laughs> yeah, but they're like fuzzy, right? Like they have yeah. a texture to them. So. Oh, yeah. Because I've seen them on people and I didn't touch them because even though I have the texture thing where I like to touch textures, I won't touch them when they're on people. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> that well, would involve getting po- in their bubble, which just, puts them in mine. That's just polite. That's just, that's just good manners, actually. It is. <laughs> oh, my God. So I'm going to I'm going to mention a book. It's called, it's one I just handed you not too long ago, oh. Bride of Satan <laughs> by William Shoel. 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 S-C-H-O-E-L-L for people. It's one of those, it looks like an 80s. An what? 80s paperback from hell when it was like the big yes. cheesy horse was and big. It was today, because I just finished it today. I looked up and I said, well, it's about time. And she goes, what? And I said, on page 320, the story came together. <laughs> but it's it's a really... So, because you read more horror than I do. Yeah. And you write horror. Yeah. Um, I really want to get your take on the book because I would decide to put it down. 
And then I would pick it up and read a few pages. And it, there would be something that caught me and kept me going. Okay. There's a very, there's a piece in it about the objectification and victimization of women in horror films. And I was just surprised. I mean, I know that's been talked about for a long time, but the way it was being talked about then, as opposed to how it's talked about now. Interesting. So I just thought, huh. <laughs> I, yeah. And so I would, I would put it down and not read. It took me like a month. I would go days in between picking it up. And finally, I just said, I'm over halfway through. I'm submitting read now. This bitch. I'm just going to read this bitch. <laughs> I finally, here we go. I probably beat you because I started reading this. Like, I started reading this a while ago, and then I was like, I'm going to read because it was a craft book this each day a little bit. And then, of course, I started school. (laughs) So it took like a year and a half. Oh my God. It wasn't because of the book, it was because I wasn't doing it. It was Damn Fine Story by Chuck Windig. Oh. I think I even talked about the beginning of the podcast, like in the first month that I was kind of reading it on the side because it's not my, I'm going to, I don't read craft books when I'm going to bed, which is when I do most of my no. reading. That's fiction time. Yeah. And so it's just going to get picked up when I'm have a little bit of time to read on the main floor. And I was trying to sit outside and get sun each day. But that's written bit. in short bits. It's not big, long chapters. So it's easy to pick yeah. that one up and read little it bits. It was. And- I would read a chapter. Or whatever yeah. and go through it. But it was a good craft book for writers. I mean, he gets into the nitty gritty and the details and he does it with a sense of humor. So, And he's sweary. He's sweary and he makes up fun terms. And he does. Yes. And he has lots of little footnotes that aren't footnotes like people would expect them. They're jokes, basically. Like, like um, Terry Pratchett's footnotes. Yeah. So it was like that. So I finally finished it. And now I'm like, fuck, man, I should just pick it up and read it from the beginning to the end. Because... <laughs> I don't remember most of what I've read, but <laughs> just because it was so long and such little snippets at a yep. time that, but it would be good. Probably I could see people going through taking notes, all that good stuff, reading it. Yep. So do we want, or do we want to start? Do you enjoy going to the grocery store? If so, this message is not for you. But if you're like me and procrastinate going to the store, Instacart is a fantastic option to ensure you no longer have to. Save yourself a trip and go through Instacart, where you can get a delivery through a personal shopper in as little as one hour. My experiences have been great so far, with my personal shopper texting me before substituting another product, letting me know when they were on their way to my house, and letting me know it had been delivered, all via text. If you click on our affiliate link in the show notes or on our website, you get free delivery on your first order over $35 and you help out our show at the same time. It's the perfect time to give it a try. Sure. All right. I believe it's uh, it's it's on me this time. <laughs> so I am going to talk about the Chowchilla kidnapping, which some people may be familiar with. It's a pretty well-known story. I would call this, I haven't done this in a while. This is a lot of mayhem because <laughs> they know who did it and nobody died. Okay. So, <laughs> I like me some good mayhem. <laughs> Especially when it's non-death mayhem. Yeah. Unless the right people die. So, Chowchilla, California, because I was like, where the fuck is that? So, it's kind of roughly right in the middle of the state. Both north, south, east, west. It's like very close to the middle of California. Is it rural? It's not rural, but it is, it's not, a, you it's know. It's not an urban center. No, it is not an urban, it's not LA, it's not Sacramento. It is home to two prisons, the Central California Women's Facility and Valley State Prison. This one killed me, because I did, oh, my sources. Sorry, I'll come back to my sources. Um, <laughs> the climate is described as Mediterranean, with dry, hot summers and cool, rainy winters. <laughs> All right, Mediterranean. I, so I got that off, obviously off of Wikipedia. So yes, that would be one of my sources. Also, SF Gate, Cinemaholic, and the California Inmate Locator. You never know what resources are available until you just look. Why not in, in locate some inmates? And it tells you what, what's been going on with them. I mean, it's a very dry, like they come when they've come up for parole and was it... Fascinating. So you look up the five billion serial killers yes. who are incarcerated in California. You could. You indeed could. So in 1976, Chowchilla is where, and I, I hope I'm not butchering the pronunciation, um, is where three men hijacked a school bus full of children in order to hold them for ransom. 
So 26 children from Dairyland Elementary School, and I believe they were ranged in age from five or six to 14 or 15. Okay. They had been on a summer field trip to the Chowchilla Fairgrounds. Um, that, makes, to, that explains the wide range of ages. I was trying to figure it out. They were going to the swimming pool. Okay. So this is on July 15th, because I was like, what are they doing in a school bus on July 15th? <laughs> so it was a summer field trip. The driver, Ed Ray, was taking them home at approximately 4 p.m., and he had actually made two stops. So he dropped a couple of kids off. Lucky kids. Yeah. At approximately 4 p.m., he was stopped by a van blocking the road. So three armed men wearing stockings over their faces. So in case you've ever seen that in a movie and thought, nobody fucking did that. Yes, they fucking they did. did. That. It's a trope, but they did it. You Because if you... That's what they had. Yeah, pull a nylon pantyhose over your head and see how it distorts your features. You can't tell who it is. Anyway, the three armed men force him out of the driver's seat. So one man holds him at gunpoint while while one of them drove and the third one followed in the van. So the kidnappers drove the bus to Berenda Slough. Slough. I can't pronounce that word. Okay. S-L-O-U-G-H. It's a swampy spot that's often dry, and it's an offshoot of a river. This is off the Chowchilla River. Where it's slough. Yes, I want to pronounce it slough, but... But it's slough. It's slough. Anyway, they go there. There's a second van. So both vans had the back windows painted black, and the interiors were reinforced with paneling. So Ed and the students were forced into the back of the two vans at gunpoint. And they were then driven around for 11 hours. So, having driven a minivan full of preteen Girl Scouts, all singing Gwen Stefani's Sweet Escape. <laughs> Woohoo. Wee-oo. <laughs> I can only imagine what it was like crammed in the back of those two vans. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So, the bus our, driver's like, could you just leave me behind? Could you? Yeah. Listen, or, 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 or just shoot me now. <laughs> I've already driven them one way and now the other, and I just want to go home and have a beer. <laughs> really? So, at around, so because they drove around for so long, it's got to be about 4 or 5 a.m., and that's my estimate. Ed and the kids were unloaded at a quarry in Livermore, California, which is about 110 miles from Chowchilla. So it's not an 11-hour drive. You could have brought them to fucking Colorado in that amount of time. So they were forced to climb down a ladder into a moving truck, which the kidnappers had buried at the quarry, and it was stocked with a little bit of food and water and some mattresses. So Ed Ray and some of the older children stacked the mattresses together so they could reach the opening in the top of the truck. Now, the opening had been covered with a big heavy sheet of metal. I'm gesturing, not that you can see it. (laughs) Covered with a big heavy sheet of metal, which was then weighted down with two giant industrial sized batteries. So Ed Ray and 14-year-old uh, Michael Marshall were able to wedge the lid open with a piece of wood. And that allowed them to dislodge the batteries and eventually to dig their way out. And actually they dug a small hole and sent one kid up. Mm-hmm. And he the kid is like, I don't know where the hell we are. <laughs> I mean they're in the yeah. middle of a quarry. He can't see anything. So they're like, they, I mean, I think they were hoping the Calvary was out there. There was a house perhaps nearby. Except, no. <laughs> so um, they dig out the rest of it and everybody gets out. Um, after, so they had been in the truck for about 16 hours. So they dig their way out. They come out and they walk to the quarry's guard shack. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it didn't really say if there was a guard there or if it was, there was a phone there. But they were able to call for help. So the kidnappers. <laughs> Ah, there's chuckle fuckery afoot here. (laughs) They wanted to demand $5 million in exchange for the release of the children. And they tried, but the Chowchilla Police Department was flooded with calls from the media and from frantic parents. So the lines were all tied up and the kidnappers couldn't get through. (laughs) So somewhere, they had fallen asleep. All three men had fallen asleep at some point on July 16th. When they woke up, they learned from the TV news that their victims had freed themselves and were now safe. <laughs> yes, I love that. Sounds like a short story. story. Yes. yes, it's like so. So, who were these quote masterminds? 
The quarry owner's son, 24-year-old Frederick Newhall Woods IV, quickly became a suspect and was captured in Vancouver, British Columbia, two weeks after the event. His partners in crime were brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld. Uh, Now, Woods and uh, James Schoenfeld were both 24 years old. Richard was 22. So James had been captured the same day as Woods in California, and Richard had turned himself in eight days after the crime. He just wasn't even going to fuck around with this. So here's the thing, though. All three of them came from what they themselves called wealthy families. And one of them said it wasn't that they didn't have, they, they were doing this solely to get money. They really didn't want to hurt the children. They just wanted to do this to get money because they felt like they were being irresponsible and couldn't ask their parents for more money. Oh, but yeah. their parents would look down on them if they I might get to some, they're not going to get yes. money. James later said, we needed multiple victims to get multiple millions. And we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them. And they don't fight back. They're vulnerable. They will mind. <laughs> they met I, children? Le- I, I said, said by a man who doesn't have children and has <laughs> never tried to wrangle a group of tired, hungry, cranky children. Yep. Can you imagine? And they're fucking bright. Kids are learning at astronomical rates yes. compared to adults, and they can figure shit out. Kids aren't dumb. And they had been <laughs> out in the sun at the swimming pool all day, so they were exhausted when this adventure started. Yeah. Tired and cranky. Yo. And you added scare Hungry. to that. Some of them probably wet themselves. Yeah. It doesn't they say little, they stopped. They were like six-year-olds yeah. and stuff. Yep. So... What happened to the children? So, no shocker. Many of them suffered panic attacks and nightmares for years. Their personality changes. Some developed new and debilitating fears. Uh Some of the victims were still reporting symptoms 25 years after the fact. I'm sure. Including substance abuse and depression. Just because somebody doesn't want to hurt you doesn't mean they convey that to you. Yeah. So... The one, it's not a bright side, but the one positive thing, what was learned from these victims of this specific, this specific crime has influenced the treatment of young trauma victims since this kidnapping. Mm, Okay. This really changed the way. And they, they learned that the sooner you intervene, the sooner you get them counseling, the sooner you help them, the better. Well, and it's a large enough Cool, right? Oh yeah, I mean, yes. That, that they were able to study the yes. same situation with multiple cool. children. Yeah, over at different ages. Yeah, it's actually kind of the perfect scientific study, which is terrible to say. Yes. But and obviously, okay, the perfect one would be a larger pool, even. But come on, yes, this was handed to them on a platter. <laughs> so the kidnapped children brought a suit against the kidnappers. It was settled in two. Now wait, what year? And was then the it? kidnappers' families probably paid it. <laughs> Hold on. This was in 1976. Okay. The suit was settled in 2016. Wow. 40 years later, the 25 surviving victims received a payout from Woods Trust Fund. Hmm. The, yeah, trust fund. He was a trust fund kid. While the amount of the settlement was never revealed, one of the victims said it was enough to pay for some serious therapy, but not enough to buy a house. All right. Nobody has ever been able to Why afford a house. Why only in one pe- one of the people had to pay? Why? Uh, he was the only one who had money. Oh. He had it in his trust fund. So all three chuckle fucks pleaded guilty to kidnapping for ransom and robbery, but refused to plead guilty to infliction of bodily harm. Okay. Because you can't count psychological damage as bodily harm. Okay. So then I wouldn't have pleaded either, I suppose. The latter would have resulted in life sentences without the possibility of parole. So they were initially initially found guilty of all the charges, but then the infliction of bodily harm was later overturned, making them eligible for parole. So in July 2012, age 57, Richard Schoenfeld was granted parole. Now, Ed Ray, the bus driver, had passed away just a month earlier at the age of 91. And these kids used to visit him. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, they that's loved a, him. That's a bonding experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, for his, the rest of his life, they, some of the kids, I, yeah. you know. So the lead prosecutor and the lead sheriff's detective from the original case 
who were both retired, both testified in favor of the parole. Jennifer Hyde, who was nine years old at the time of the crime, was asked how she felt about his release. While she wouldn't say she had forgiven him, she said she had moved past her anger and her hatred. Okay. So his brother, James, was paroled in 2015 at the age of 63. They were apparently contrite at their parole hearings, and they accepted responsibility for what they did. They, I imagine they, they did. They did a very stupid thing, thinking and, it was harmless and not realizing yes. psychological impacts. Exactly. And they expressed that. They accepted responsibility for their role Good. in the kidnapping. Expressed remorse. So Fred, Fred Woods, the mastermind, his requests for parole have all been denied, and oh. he will be eligible for another hearing within the next five years. He has never acknowledged the severity of his crimes, of his crime. But while he's been in jail, he's been running his businesses and collecting it from his trust fund. I didn't know you were allowed to do that. You're not. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought that it wasn't allowed. Yeah. He bought a mansion that's like 15 minutes away from the prison. He has been married three times since he's been in prison. Three times. I just, okay. No. He, so the, his three businesses, he had Ambria Acres Christmas Tree Farm, which I believe went out of business. And that was actually how they tumbled to the fact that he was running it was because whoever his manager was got injured and tried to sue. It was a thing. But that's how they figured out he was running it. He's got the little bear creek gold mine near lake tahoe and a used cars business that recently when this was written the article was written sold an antique car for a hundred thousand dollars and you know what he has on his car lot he has the two vans used in the kidnapping because he thinks they'll be valuable to collectors one day wow he's special he wants to make some money off of they and everybody acknowledges he was the ringleader uh, but and he just, the rules, and everybody who knows him says he's always been like this. The rules do not apply to him. Yeah. He does not have to follow the rules. He's they one don't. of those rich kids. Yeah. Yeah. Entitled to the world. So, I mean, it had a happy ending in that none of the kids were killed, but it didn't have a happy ending because of all the damage that was done to them. No. And, I mean, one shot a tourist with a BB gun. What happened was the tourist parked in front of his house uh, and he was still a kid when this happened and it just freaked him out and he shot the tourist Okay, with a BB gun. I, it didn't, I didn't kill him, but I imagine being, you know, buried in a truck would make you a little driven around by people. You didn't know their intentions for 11 hours or whatever it was would yeah. cause some significant PTSD. And I wonder if, what makes me curious is if there's a difference in the kids who are in the van with Ed, the bus driver, and mm -hmm. the kids who weren't. Yeah. True. Because those other kids didn't have their trusted adult with them. Right. Yeah. So, I and I they, there wasn't any mention of that. They did talk to, what was his name? Michael Marshall? Yeah. The kid who helped. And, and he was very, he was very much, I don't really think about it anymore i don't he doesn't think of himself as any kind of hero he was just like i was just helping i you know you wanted to get the little kids out and he you know he got married and had kids does suffer from ptsd and has a rescue dog Aww. so i'm very happy i feel about that. that most actual heroes versus what we as americans tend to call heroes a lot of the time don't see themselves as heroes because they were just doing what needed to be done. They weren't yes. like, I did this for victory. <laughs> I did this so that they would see me as the superhero that I am. So. I wanted to be carried about on their shoulders. Legit. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the Chachilla kidnapping. I mean, burying them in a, but so ineptly. That they were able that to get out. They were out in less than, a, don't get me wrong. I'm, it was a horrifying experience. But they were out in less than a day. Yeah. They and good on Ed for not stopping, for not going, well, I'm buried in a truck. What am I going to do? Oh, woe is me. These children smell like urine. <laughs> <laughs> and 
cheese. Listen, that truck stink because I tell you what, an elementary school <laughs> worked in them. Anyway. Okay, so what are you going to talk about today? Do the Lindbergh kidnapping. Oh. Oh. We have a thing about, we do not plan these out. We, we do, do not, not consult and yet with they were both other. kidnappings this yeah. time. Okay, my sources Wikipedia, charleslindbergh.com, <laughs> history.com, New England Today Living, FBI.gov. Well, I was going to say, charleslindbergh.com, that man, what a fascinating man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell you what, Charles Augustus Lindbergh II was born February 4th, 1902, in Detroit, Michigan. He dropped out of college to be a barnstormer, then enlisted in the Army to be in the Air Service before there was an Air Force. There, I had a whole bunch more written about his background, and I was like, this is fucking long. Okay. <laughs> what would what, what fascinated me? What would ultimately make him famous and therefore a target for extortion was a contest called the Orteg Prize. Orteg. O-R-T-E-I-G. Raymond Orteg in 1919 offered a $25,000 prize to anyone who could fly nonstop from New York to Paris. That's right. Many tried and failed. Some died. Some were wounded. On May 20th, 1927, he offered this. This opened up in 1919. Wow. It took until 1927. Lindbergh set off on the nonstop flight, which he completed the 21st in Paris after 33 and a half hours. And in fact, he set a record before that, which is funny. I deleted that part. I'm telling you anyway. <laughs> to try out. He had designed the plane. He got backers. Mm-hmm. And they helped him build the plane because he was like, I can do this, but I need the right plane. And he then tested the plane out by flying from New York or from California to New York. Mm-hmm. So he and he made that he was the fastest to have flown transcontinental. Oh, wow. So he set a record there too. When he landed, didn't he land in the wrong place in England? Am I misremembering? You're misremembering. Okay, sorry. He landed in Paris. Oh, maybe that's an Amelia Earhart thing. She land somewhere different than she'd intended. I don't remember. I, I miss it. I but I think I, since I deleted, it, I don't have it, but that hit that transcontinental flight mm-hmm. of his, that was 20 hours. Something. Wow. So it was set a record. He received medals and other honors, including the congressional medal of honor, which I was like, what the fuck do we reward that for then? Okay. Anyway, from Calvin Coolidge toward <laughs> the U S funded by Harry Guggenheim and contributed to the future of aviation, satellites, missiles, and space travel and stuff that he, Figured out. He met his wife, Anne Morrow, daughter of an ambassador in Mexico while touring there to represent the U.S. It was like a goodwill tour. Of course. Ah, They married in 1929. She piloted with him and was a poet. He actually taught her how to fly, and then they flew together, and they actually charted new paths for commercial airlines. Again, fascinating. Yeah. They had their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh III, on June 22nd, 1930. As mentioned earlier, the sudden fame he experienced also led to an unfortunate and insanely famous crime that occurred March 1st, 1932, when the baby, also known as Little Lindy, was 20 months old. They weren't yet living in the house in Hopewell, New Jersey, but stayed weekends and would go home Monday mornings while it was being finished. But on this night, a Tuesday, they'd stayed longer than usual because the baby had a cold. Lindbergh II was at work at 7.30 p.m. when Anne put the baby to bed with their nanny. They latched all the shutters in the room except one set because it was warped and didn't latch. And I'm like, seriously, they were still fucking building it and the <laughs> shutters were warped? <laughs> Quality. The nanny checked on, the, on him again at 7.50 p.m., but she was not supposed to because Lindbergh was very big on, we do not coddle this child. We do not coddle children. You are not to check on him again until 10 p.m. when you are to take him to the bathroom. So apparently he was being potty trained. That's young. 20 months. At 8.25 p.m., Lindbergh arrived home. He was 45 minutes later than usual. He honked his horn as he arrived, which was also unusual, and he had, he and Anne had dinner, then retired to the living room. At 9.15 p.m., Lindbergh said he heard a noise, which he described as sounding, quote, like the cracking of an orange crate falling off a chair. Anne hadn't heard it. Their Boston Terrier did not bark. Hmm. At about 9.20 p.m., Anne went to bed. She liked to go to bed to read. Lindbergh went up to take a bath, then went to his study to do some work. Then Annie went up to check at the usual 10 p.m. time, which is when she was supposed to take the baby to the bathroom. Instead, she found an empty crib and muddy footprints leading from the unshuttered window. Oh, my God. Anne and the nanny searched the house. 
Charles went out and searched in his car. When he came in, he went up to the nursery by himself. A ransom note had been taped to the windowsill that they hadn't found before that asked for $50,000. They, of course, said in the note not to notify the police. As it happens. It's in the movies because it happens. <laughs> Outside, there were indentations in the dirt below the window. Only that window. The broken window. Some footprints, wood fragments, and a baby blanket. A ladder was found in the woods. And it was it was a little odd and clearly been handmade. Despite the orders in the note, Lindbergh did contact his lawyer and the police. They fingerprinted, but found absolutely no fingerprints. Hmm. None. Not the families. Not anybody's. Except for some on the crib, I think, that were the babies. Or even shoe prints that could be used. In fact, the entire nursery was been like it had been wiped down. Hmm. Shutters. Everything. So... Elements of the ransom note made it appear that the note had been written by someone who was originally German, but had lived in the U.S. Hmm. for a bit of time. The latter was felt to be handmade. And March 2nd, J. Edgar Hoover contacted the police department in New Jersey and offered the services of the FBI. At this time, the FBI did not get kidnappings automatically, like interstate, like they do. Right. It This case actually led to that policy, oh. that to kidnapping being a federal offense. The New Jersey State Police offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the kidnapper. Tons of people offered their help, with many of them arriving at the mansion. A lot of military people offered their help. And a man named Schwarzkopf, whose son would later become quite famous. Really? Ended up helping. Wow. Working for Lindbergh. They actually trampled evidence, making it so police couldn't look further (laughs) for footprints. Because of his fame and influence, Charles Lindbergh basically took over the investigation. He threatened to shoot any cop who went against him, pushed the FBI away, didn't want them helping. And he and his cohorts decided that the mafia was involved and went to a man named Mickey Rosner, who was supposed to have mafia contacts. Famous mob leaders contacted him, including Al Capone, offering to help. Capone put up like a $10,000 reward or something. And of Damn. course, there was a price attached. For instance, Capone wanted to be freed from prison, but insisted he could help and had some information to track the child down. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Within a day, the president, Herbert Hoover, also became involved. The Lindbergh family put up a $50,000 reward in addition to the 25000 already being offered by the police and the 10000 from Capone. Bear in mind, it was the Great Depression at the time. That was a shit ton of money. Yeah, it was. March 6th, a ransom letter came in postmarked March 4th. On the first letter had been a set of circles and punched holes in red and blue, and this ransom carried the same figures. It now said the kidnapper wanted $70,000. Then a third note arrived, demanding that a man named John Condon would be the one to deliver the money to the kidnappers from the Lindberghs. This note was sent to their attorney instead of them. Hmm. It gave requirements for a box that the money should be put in, which they had custom made. Funnily enough, it said, again, not to contact the police, which would... Had clearly Clearly, already been contacted. And I was like, oh, it was in the news. Everybody knew about this. As far as why it was asked that John Condon deliver the money, I had to go find this. Nothing said. He had posted an ad offering an extra $1,000 reward and saying he was willing to be the go-between. He actually posted an ad saying, I'll be the go-between. And I'll throw in a whole $1,000. He tried to get them to turn the, he like, I'll give you $1,000 if you just turn the baby into a Catholic priest. What? Ah, Kazam, you're a Catholic priest. No, different. <laughs> the kidnapper then supposedly sent a letter to Condon telling him they would accept his offer to be intermediary. They said they wanted to be notified the newest ransom note was received. So then he put an ad in the New York American saying, it has been received. What would you like from me? Via another letter, a meeting was scheduled. There were so there were like 12 letters total. Oh my God. At Woodlawn Cemetery. The kidnapper who called himself John and would famously come to be known as Cemetery John from then out stood in the shadows and had an accent. He claimed there were four other kidnappers in the gang and that he was a Scandinavian soldier. He said they had the baby on a boat. John Condon told the kidnapper that he needed proof he was the real kidnapper and had the baby, so the kidnapper agreed to send little Indy's pajamas. He said, you can expect to receive those by post. And they did. March 16th, they were they received the baby's pajamas with a new note. And it will be, there was this whole aside where the kidnapper was like, so what if the package weren't complete when you received it. What are you going to do about it? And he was like, excuse me? Like, what are you saying? Is the baby dead? And they were like, no, 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 never mind. Baby's fine. Condon had to place an ad saying he was ready to deliver the money. The response came April 1st by letter. 
And it actually was dropped off by some taxi driver. Somebody walked up to him, said, I need you to deliver this to this guy. And the taxi driver took it. Wow. Condon Condon took the custom wooden box, which they hoped they'd be able to maybe use as an identifier later, full of $50,000 as the ransom, the original, and met the kidnapper once again on April 2nd, said, yeah, we couldn't come up with any more money. And the kidnapper was like, cool, cool, cool. I'll take (laughs) (laughs) $50,000. Cool, 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 cool. The kidnapper said the baby could be found on a ship called Nellie that was anchored outside St. Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Huh. And of course, the boat. Could not be found. No such. And nothing further was heard from the kidnapper or his gang. Then on May 12th, they had paid this ransom April 2nd. So this whole time they're sitting there like, okay, where's the baby? A delivery truck driver pulled over so his assistant could go pee. And the man walked into the woods less than five miles from the Lindbergh's. It was so funny. One article was like less than a mile from the Lindbergh's home. Another one was like less than three miles. And another one was less than five miles. So I took the most trustworthy article I read, and it was less than five miles from the Lindbergh's home. The assistant stumbled upon the body of baby Lindbergh partially buried, like they kind of half-assed tried. Investigation of the body showed the baby had been killed by a nasty blow to the head the same night he had been kidnapped. Animals had scavenged at the decomposed body. It was thought that he had been dropped during the removal from the room. That's been the theory for a long time, that as they were coming down the ladder, they dropped him, cracked his little skull open, and then were like, ah, fuck. He killed the ransom baby. Nothing further could be gathered as Lindbergh ordered the baby be cremated the next day without a full autopsy. So the baby was cremated because he had power. By the way, the resources that went into finding this baby, nobody else got that gets that. Oh, treatment. no. This no. Is, that was just a clear reminder that mm-hmm. you get this help when you're rich. The Lindberghs, now knowing their child had been dead the entire time, donated their home and moved. The home that they had been building to begin with. I wouldn't want to live in it. Nope. In June, a servant at the Morrow home named Violet Sharp was accused of being part of the kidnapping. They felt her alibi was inconsistent and things she said were. The night before she was supposed to be questioned for the fourth time, she committed suicide by drinking silver polish that contained cyanide. Oh. After her death, the police were able to confirm her alibi. Police then went after John Condon as the man had come into the investigation oddly posting the ad and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He'd also been kind of flamboyantly making a spectacle of himself since then and like using it as like a fame thing. Yeah. So people are creepy. Yeah. Lindbergh actually never believed he was responsible and stuck up for him against the police. Police could find no proof. They even searched his home. So they were like, all right, never mind. And so in turn, John Condon then started his own investigation. He also repeatedly kept during that investigation, like I, he would walk into places and be like, I'm investigating the Lindbergh kidnapping. And yeah, continued to exploit that. All the numbers for the bills used in the ransom, including some gold certificates that had been used for easier traceability since they were about to be discontinued, had been written down. Police sent pamphlets with all the serial numbers out to businesses. They sent 250,000 of these pamphlets to multiple cities, but focused mostly on New York City. Then the president announced that all gold certificates had to be exchanged for cash by May 1st, 1933. A man showed up to a bank in Manhattan and exchanged, it was like $2,980 worth of gold certificates, which wasn't all of the ones that had been Mm -hmm. given, but a huge chunk of them. And... After that person left, they were like, oh, wait, shit. These are the gold certificates that we're looking for. And luckily, when people turn those in, their information was recorded. So they did have a name and address, J.J. Faulkner, 537 West 149th Street. Unfortunately, there was no one by that name at that address. Of course. 20 years before, a woman named Jane Faulkner had lived there. She knew no J.J. Somebody had just found out that she'd lived there and used that. Obviously, certificates, dead end. In the meantime, the ransom bills were showing up around New York City, and the police were actually able to narrow down the locations of the spent bills to being along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway. Oh. At one end of this route was a German-Austrian neighborhood called Yorkville that paired with the apparently Germanic origins of the ransom notes caught the attention of detectives. They figured, all right, here's where somebody's going to live. September 17, 1934, a bank teller turned in a gold certificate with one of the ransom serial numbers. Someone had written a license plate number on the certificate. It was traced to a gas station where it had been taken, then turned into the bank, and the manager was able to tell them that he'd written the number on the bill when it was paid to him because the guy who'd spent it had been acting strange. So he's actually, they were able to do a police sketch. 
he'd feared the certificate might be counterfeit. That's he wasn't thinking about the kidnapping, but he was like, all right, is this even real? Like yeah. these were supposed to be turned in. All right. So that's why he wrote it. The license plate number belonged to a man named Bruno Richard Hauptman. They arrested him and found a gold certificate on his person. They arrested him directly outside his house when he came out. Upon searching his house, they found $14,000 worth of the ransom money in a shoebox in his garage. Also in his home were found a sketch for building a ladder, or what, like an architect said, "Ah, that's the ladder. John Condon's telephone number and address written on, like, the inside of a closet doorway or frame, and a piece of wood matching the ladder. Hopsman was beaten and interrogated for a night and two days. He never took responsibility for the crime, instead claiming that his business partner, Isidore Fish, had asked him to hold the box and other items, and that Fish had gone back to Germany and died. His death was March 29th, 1934. He said that he'd only discovered the box held money after his partner died, and he had to go through the man's items. He said he kept the money because his partner owed him from a business deal. It was funny because I did find that like, the amount the partner owed him was definitely not the amount that was in that shoebox. <laughs> He had no idea about the origin of the money. However, Condon's information written on that wall was not on something like somebody would have randomly left in this dude's house. Yeah. It wasn't written on a post-it. No. On September 24th, 1934, Hopman was indicted in the Bronx for extortion for the ransom. And then on October 8th, he was indicted in New Jersey. So he lived okay. in the Bronx. But the crime, the kidnapping Happened was in New, New Jersey. Jersey. So that they indicted him there for the Lindbergh baby's kidnapping and death. So... As I'm sure people have heard repeatedly, because this isn't an uncommon story, this was considered the trial of the century. Yes. When I told a story at whatever episodes ago, that that crime was the new crime of the century yes. since the crime of the century. All eyes were on Hauptmann's trial. Justice was sought for the murder of the baby belonging to one of America's most respected men. Because I guess if you can fly long distances, you're a hero. The New York Daily Mirror hired an attorney to represent Hauptman with their payment being the rights to publish the story. Handwriting experts testified that his handwriting matched the ransom notes. I actually have images of those that I'll post. Experts on wood testified that the wood used in the ladder matched a plank in his attic. So it appeared he'd cut wood out of his attic to use. And tool marks matched his tools. They were even able to show that there were some odd nail holes on the ladder that they were like, what the hell? It matched where the ladder holes would have been in the attic. Hauptman had no explanation for Condon's address and telephone number other than he had followed the case with interest and maybe been reading the paper in the closet and had written it down from the paper for some reason. There were also where I like to read yeah, the paper. Absolutely. In the closet. I just picture him like doo 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 sitting in the closet. Picks up his little pencil from Make his ear. <laughs> the prosecution. Oh, there were also testimony saying he was the man who'd collected the ransom and that he had been in the area at the time of the kidnapping. It was also shown that he'd missed work on the day of the kidnapping and that he'd quit his job two days afterward without finding a new job. He never went back to work anywhere, yet had the money to send his wife on a trip to Germany and to buy a $400 radio. At that time, a $400 wow. radio. The prosecution was able to find witnesses that said Fish died nearly penniless and couldn't afford treatment for the tuberculosis that killed him. Therefore, if he had been the one who'd taken this money, wouldn't he have used it? One would think. His landlady said he had trouble paying his rent, which was $3.50 per week. Hauptman was found guilty and sentenced to death. Appeals failed. Before he was to be electrocuted, he was offered life without parole instead if he would confess he refused, maintained his innocence, and died by electric chair April 3rd, 1936. Wow. His wife fought for his innocence until 1994 when she died at age 95. Wow. Arguments against Hopman's guilt have included shoddy police work, crappy evidence, fake evidence, and false witnesses. One of the witnesses was mostly blind and couldn't make out what a vase full of flowers was at a short distance but said he'd seen Hauptman in town the day of the murder. Another witness didn't identify him in a lineup. He was like, nah, don't see him, but later then testified it was him at the trial. Yet another witness said he'd seen nothing suspicious around the kidnapping, then said, later said he had, a, had, he had and testified against Hauptman. Later, he would admit to the New Jersey governor, Harold Hoffman, who actually did an investigation on his own because he mm -hmm. felt something was wrong, that he had lied to get part of the reward money. So he lied on the stand. Okay. Hoping to get reward money. Hauptman was not given a translator, even though he spoke poor English. So his entire trial, English. 
The defense wasn't given access to the police and investigation files and could not afford expert witnesses. It was theorized that Lindbergh himself was responsible, with accusations that he had been playing a prank on his wife by removing his son from the room, but had dropped him off and accidentally killed dropped him and accidentally killed him. And then there was something else saying, well, maybe the baby was disabled and he was paying somebody to remove the baby to take them to Germany, where he would live out his life and make it look like a kidnapping. As odd as Lindbergh II's involvement sounds, in January 1932, he had hidden the baby in the closet and told his wife and the nanny that the baby was missing, let them search for 20 minutes, frantic, and then been like, I'm playing a trick on you. That's not That motherfucker would have gotten appendages cut off for that shit. In some of the theories, it is thought that while Hauptmann didn't kill the baby, he did attempt to extort the family after the story of the disappearance hit the news. Here's what makes that not so true, is the symbols and the hole punches on the first, Mm -hmm. the ransom letter taped in there matched things that were mailed in. Ah. So there was, they used that as their signature so that they, and they said in the first letter, this will tell you this is from me. Okay. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. It does. And it does kind of eradicate a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. You know, because Lindbergh, apparently there was another prank Lindbergh pulled on somebody. And it was like when he was in the, what was it called? Air reserves or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he put, instead of alcohol in a flask, he put kerosene and let a friend drink. It actually almost killed this other person. And people, when they actually interviewed him, were like, he was a cold son of a bitch. So it's like interesting because we don't hear that. No. So I could believe that there is a conspiracy that Lindbergh worked with Hauptmann, but I don't understand why they'd have to give me a reason why. Yeah. And I don't have a reason why. Anyway, Charles Lindbergh himself is an interesting man. Like I've said, both before and after his son's death, crazily hearkening back to his mechanical background, he invented an artificial heart. After his son's death, became known as a Nazi sympathizer, opposed America's entry into World War II, then flew 50 combat missions in it, won a Pulitzer Prize for a second book about his famous flight. He'd written a first one already and became a conservationist before he died. He died August 26, 1974. He and his wife did go on to have more children. There's this whole fascinating yeah there's a whole book about the conspiracy theories that it was him that did it. And I think his adult daughter sued over it. Wow. Um, you know, maligning her father's name and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm like, if you can't offer us a motive uh, yeah, for him to do this, then it all falls apart. But at the same time, they would not normally have been there. And yet the kidnapper knew they were, the house was not visible. It was in the woods and it was not visible from main roads. Also, there were not ladder marks in front of the other shutters. They were all closed. They just uh-huh. weren't latched. And yet, the ladder marks were only in front of that busted okay. shutter. It made them think, obviously, maybe somebody in the household was involved. Right. It was the nanny, you know, and she wasn't involved. And they never found anything. She never even got arrested like the person who worked for the wife's mom. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just a lot of really odd details. Him being 45 minutes late. That was, they argued that would have given him time to have brought the ladder. And I'm like, okay, when did he build the ladder? Yeah. Why? I mean, I I still don't understand building the ladder. Yeah. So he could afford a ladder. And it, they were doing construction on the house. There would have, yeah. You'd there would have been, been ladders, ladders around. And it, so, I don't know. And it seems like if they were having work done on the house, there could have been any number of people who weren't members of the household. Right. Who were on the work crew who knew about that. The interesting thing, Bruno Hopton, I think it said he was a carpenter. Hmm. But he wasn't a carpenter working on that house. But I'm like, did he talk to somebody who was? Is that? But but still, how do they know? You would have to know that day. There would have been no planning. They've they've stayed an extra two nights. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of really weird things to it that make it stand out as. And if he was at work, I suppose he could easily have said at work, "Yep." Junior sick. We're going to stick around for a couple of days. Right. And so it could have been there. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that it's like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) So I just think it's funny that, I mean, it's really such a mild thing compared to things that have happened to other people. And yet it was so famous because it was him. Yeah. I mean, if it had happened to 
Joe Schmo down the street who would have Nobody would it. ever know with exactly yeah. the same circumstances. Of course, you don't kidnap Joe Schmo's baby because you're not going to get any money. money. Yeah, I thought that was funny in the one that you told because the, the guys were like, we needed multiple millions, so we kidnapped a bunch of kids. And I'm like, and how many of those kids, how many, uh, how much money could you extract? But they said. But they wanted the government. To yeah, pay they it. thought the state would pay it. And I'm yeah. like, the state I don't of think California? that's how it works. No, I, don't th- I don't think so. I'm not sure that's ever happened, but maybe it has. Maybe they researched it. Who knows? I, that's <laughs> so possible. One of those things. There's an old Judd Nelson movie where they're all like a bunch of little rich boys that scheme to do something. I don't remember what it's called, but it's like maybe they shouldn't be allowed to get so bored. Yeah. <laughs> we need we need a little extra cash. So let's let's kidnap some kids and kidnap sh- a full bus. And and shove that let's first of all, let's bury a moving truck in the desert, in the in the quarry. And I, I'm like, could you have made it any more difficult for yourself? And there are pictures of them they of the moving truck being excavated out of the oh yeah ground. I'm like, why? <sighs> so much work. And what did they must have ties to the quarry to be able to pull something like this off? Yeah, the kid, the guy who was the ringleader, his dad owned it. Okay. Yeah. So with Bruno Hauptmann, they were like, well, evidence was planted and whatnot, and sure that could happen, but. The dude quitting his job two days after the kidnapping, and then apparently he like did some stock investments. Okay, and stuff. the quitting his job, so... the quitting his job, and the address written on the inside wall of the closet. I, yeah, I'm not buying that he sits and reads his paper there. <laughs> no, it's very strange. Is that a German habit, perhaps <laughs> that, that we're not aware of? I don't that know. you read a paper in the dark? And he did have a record for um, sort of theft. Back in Germany and actually, like, broken out and fled. Oh. oh, and there's more. Like, he's interesting, too. He had come. He snuck in, got caught, got sent back to Germany, snuck in again on a boat. <laughs> he kept, was a stowaway on a right. boat. And it took. It was the third time that he actually successfully got into the U.S. Wow. So, like, he has this whole background. Very interesting. So, it it's not... Because... I looked it up because I'd heard, I kept hearing, you know, that, oh, Bruno Hauptmann didn't do it. It was a conspiracy because he didn't speak English and they took advantage of a migrant or what, you know. Uh, and right. it's like, okay, well, that doesn't stand. Like, when I, you actually do the research, that doesn't stand at all. No. There's it not a compelling argument against it having been him. No. Except for how he had so much inside knowledge. Because, yeah, that's all very strange. Shouldn't have happened in the first place. Leave other people's kids alone. That is the moral. I never once said chinchilla instead of chow I know. Good job. I'm very proud of myself. We all thought it. <laughs> including the listeners. <laughs> so it's okay. Oh, did I give... I have to... If I didn't, I have to give credit to Thing 2 for bringing this one to my attention. Oh, okay. I do not think I did. And she listened, so... She'll come home and go, you asked me about that. And then you didn't give it. So she did bring this one to my attention. So. Yes, it was funny because I don't even remember. It was something. It was either a story you did or a story I'd just done. And I thought about it. And then I jotted it down. And then we did, we did discuss this one. I was like, you can have it. Take it. Thank you. Do it. Thank you for listening. Yes, we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Mystery Sponsors and Mayhem. Find us on Facebook and Instagram or at our website, mysteriesmonstersmayhem.com. Please like, rate, and review, follow, and share wherever your favorite podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening and supporting our podcast. We'll be back next week with more shenanigans.